Over the last century, expectations for women have changed dramatically as women have competed with societal forces to define who they are and what they can do. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and this week we'll be discussing women's efforts to gain rights, equality, and freedom in American society. Our panel will discuss these issues through perspectives such as working women and women of color. You'll be able to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And it's uh, no accident that, that this week during Women's History Month that we're going to be talking about Women's history and also also basically women's present, I think, and what's going on in, with uh, women's issues today over the last century. Of course, societal expectations for women have changed dramatically, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about that with three guests. And we have two in the studio. Kate Taylor is an assistant professor of gender studies and sociology at Indiana University. Deborah Whitus is a professor of law at the IU Maurer School of Law. And Janet Cheatham-Bell is an Indiana author. She's joining us by phone today. She's an Indiana author. Uh, and her work center on um, race and gender, such as her memoirs growing up in Indianapolis. So um, you can join us on the program. I hope you will at one 811 or one 285 outside of the Bloomington Calling Area. And you can join us at Noon Edition if you're following us on Twitter. So thanks, everybody. It's a it's a, a busy time in the world. Sarah was just talking about how the there might be a vote on the new Obamacare later this afternoon, and that's going to have a big impact on women. I want to turn to Deborah first and just ask about that as an issue. I mean, that's a big issue. Today, there's several things in that law that might have an impact on women. Right? right. Well, one of the things that Obamacare did was require that employers provide, say, access to contraception, free, um, also comprehensive maternity coverage. And I think uh, in the discussions today is whether or not employers will still be required to do that if the House push, Republican pushed bill were to pass. Mm-hmm. So this is just one example of how. Uh, even you know gains that have been made by women in in the past may be under some threat today, and and it's never it's never over, right? No, so, right. Uh, so Kate Taylor is with us, and Kate studies gender studies and sociology. What are some of the things that you specialize in, Kate? Um, my work is mostly on uh, gender in the workplace um, and thinking about how the sex composition of someone's workplace affects um, their health and uh, outcomes, basically. So that's, that's very narrow, but I very broadly study gender in the workplace. And, mm-hmm. yeah. So give me a little bit more about that. So if, if, uh, you know, if, if you're like, if your workplace is predominantly male, mm-hmm. as I think a lot mm-hmm. still are, mm-hmm. I mean, how does that affect women in the workplace, for instance? Well, like, workplace is actually... Um, more broadly kind of backing up are just highly gender segregated. So Mm -hmm. most people work in an occupation that is um, predominantly of their own sex. So both women and men work in in an occupation with the majority of their own sex. And then obviously um, working in an occupation where you're the minority has um, certain effects. So for um, like a a woman physicist, for example, or a woman construction worker, um, they have, you know, pretty... um, predictable kind of social experiences, higher levels of sexual harassment. People often question their legitimacy as a member of that occupation. 
And then on the other hand, of course, those women do um, have benefits compared to other women because male-dominated occupations, um, all else being equal, are higher paid, higher status, and actually have better health benefits and more flexibility. So oftentimes we think that um, women go into female-dominated occupations because they're better for you know, child-rearing or flexi- family flexibility, but that's actually not true. Mm-hmm. Women's occupations are less flexible and have fewer uh, family-friendly benefits on average than men's occupations. Interesting. Well, we'll get a little bit deeper into okay. that yeah. as we yeah. as we go along. I wanted to bring Janet onto the conversation. Janet Cheatham-Bell is joining us by phone. So, Janet, you're you're an author, and I know that you, you graduated from IU back in the, the 1960s, I think, correct? Yes. And then you... Yes. You started you started your work um, doing writing and studying. What what uh, you know? What was your your goal when you started writing? Uh, my goal, I think, all my life has been to um, elevate black people in our society. In other words, make us more visible. Because while I was growing up, we were largely invisible. So my goal has always been to make us more visible. And is the the idea of you know black people in society, but black women has that been a, a more difficult um, part? Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, we uh, think of ourselves as being at the very bottom of the hierarchy. I mean, not only are we women, but we're also black. So that means that we get uh, disregarded, underestimated, which works to my advantage sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> All the time. So while I was growing up, I had to, as a matter of fact, I think I was probably 30 years old before I recognized that some of the discrimination I was enduring was not because I was black, it was because I was female. Prior to that, I had always assumed that people were just being racist. And I was about 30 before I understood how sexist uh, people were. Mm-hmm. Men were, should I say. <laughs> right. I've heard that as a criticism, though, of the Women's March, is that it's being led a lot by women who, by white women, who do have lots of means, and that's so much different than an African-American woman. And I, I think that that's what you're, what you're saying, Janet, is that these are really two really separate things. Well, they shouldn't be separate, though. Uh, that's the thing that I find very disturbing, is that inside the women's movement there is racism, and, and that really, really bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, on both sides of the equation, uh, I know black women who won't be involved in the women's, like the march that they had right after uh, the inauguration, because they said it was led by white women, and white women need to be more sensitive and aware that when they're putting movements or organizations together to invite women of color into them, rather than just assuming that they know what is best for everybody. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an, this idea of pr- women providing support to women. Um, I don't know, Deborah, you, do you want to take that? Just, I mean, how much are we honestly are hurting each other? <laughs> I mean, I think that that's an issue that the women's movement has struggled with for a long time. I think there's certainly been progress. And I think within individual workplaces, too, you know, there are stories of sort of female bosses who are famously unsupportive of um, other women with challenges. But I think we kind of get into a bad place when we focus too much on that kind of intra-fighting because there are a lot of common issues as well, not to say that there aren't some distinct issues, but I think that it can be a little bit of a distraction from some of the bigger issues of sexism that continue to hurt women of all races and all classes, even while recognizing there are some differences as well. Sometimes I'm, I guess, you know, I grew up, I'm a little older than everybody else in this room, Janet. I'm closer. You and I are closer to age, and I, I'm, I've seen the long struggle, and it seems like we've made so much progress. But then all of a sudden, I, I feel like there's some been been some backsliding in the last few years. Like there was progress that was made to a certain point, and now there's some pushback to progress. Am I just? I mean, am I am I right about that, or do you want to challenge that assumption, Janet? I want to start with you. Uh, there's definitely been pushback, and I think it's because the people who have been in power, which are largely white males, are loath 
to lose their control over everybody, and they see it slipping away, and that was concretized when uh, Barack Obama was elected president, because that was a definitely a white male preserve, and then here comes a man of color into this exclusively white male preserve, and that, I think, sort of created hysteria, and what surprised me was that they not only wanted to uh, corral uh, people of color, stop immigration, put all the black men in jail, but that they also decided they wanted to respect their control over women by going after their reproductive rights. Kate or Deborah? Anyone want to respond just to the, this theme of um, you know whether we're continu- making continual progress or whether it's fits and starts and where we are right now? I think um, I think the answer is that it's not a linear progression for um, women or for African Americans or other racial minorities, immigrant groups. Um, you do definitely see these historical moments of progress and then uh, what people call backlash sometimes, which is what um, Janet was speaking of and what you kind of uh, point to a little bit. Um, and you can really see that. I, I think it's really important when you're thinking about um, women's progress in general to think about two things. One is that you know women are not a homogeneous group. Like There are many different kinds of women with very, very different issues, which Janet also spoke to, um, along race lines, but also along class lines, sexual orientation. Um, so, so to think about progress, you'd have to. There's, you can't say like, well, one one type of woman has made a certain kind of progress, another type of woman hasn't. There actually is heterogeneity in the kind of progress women have made at different times, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. The other thing I think um, that's really interesting about this is that we, I think, a lot of people think about like the traditional woman's role as um, the the female homemaker in a heterosexual marriage with a, with a male breadwinner, right? That's like our idea of quote-unquote traditional. But that, that, um, that, the prevalence of that kind of relationship, Stephanie Kuntz, a historian you may have heard of, writes about this a lot, that the prevalence of that kind of relationship was actually very short in, in the United States and um, Western European history. So it was from the maybe the late 40s to the early 60s. And so... We often think like women have progressed since then, right? Since the 1950s, and everything looks very different now. But actually, there's been a lot of um, ups and downs in women's roles before then, after then, since then. And what, what's happened in the workplace, in particular, is that women were in the workplace a lot, actually. Um, especially if you think about previous to the 1950s, they were in agriculture, working in factories, working in small shops alongside their husbands, and indeed alongside their children, actually, right? By the 1950s, you see the predominance of the male breadwinner or female um, homemaker marriage. And then in the 1960s, you see an increase in female participation in the paid labor force, because women have always worked, right? But they come into the paid labor force in the 1960s, and then they always work and they've always done important work, right? But they start to get in the paid labor force in the 1960s, and there's this progression where they they go from being about 30% of the paid labor force to, oh, I'm sorry, that's not true. Their their labor participation is about 30%, and then then to about 60% in the 1990s. So there's kind of, up, there is this linear upward curve, upward uh, line for women, but by the 1990s it stalls, and we haven't got past 60%. So that kind of answers your question. Yeah. You're thinking about mm-hmm. paid labor force participation. Again, remember women have always worked, but paid participation in, is, is, has really stalled in the 1990s, and we actually haven't moved past that. It went down for a little while, and now we're kind of like plateauing again for about 40 years. Yeah. Wanna... And black women have always worked, right, beginning Correct. with yeah. slavery. We've of course, never... yeah. As a matter of fact, we were kind of surprised when we heard that women wanted to be liberated so they could work. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's actually um, a lot of, like, some of the um, black feminist sociologists talk about this idea that for, um, this is kind of, I think, building off what you are saying, Janet, um, that for black women, um, a, a liberation was to be able to be in the home and have your own home. Because, of course, under slavery and even post-slavery, there was a lot of... Um, interference with black family life by white um, racism, basically. (laughs) Janet could probably articulate that better than me. If a black woman didn't have a job, that was considered amazing because it meant that her husband was making a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it's heterogeneity. Like, when we think about progress, it means, it literally means different things to different kinds of women. That's especially true for black versus white women. Absolutely. And that's something we probably should just acknowledge, you know, Women's History Month, Black History Month, uh, any 
we we can't stereotype groups of people because everybody is different, and you know right. we're, we're going to look at this group, but yeah, uh, no group is homogeneous. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to get back to to some of this topic, but I want to uh, give our phone numbers again: eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, and one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area. And you can also join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You know, we we're talking about uh, some of the the backlash from you know uh, Barack Obama became president. I mean, I you know I'm I am a white male. I have to say that. I have to acknowledge that fact. Here, but I saw that as as a huge step forward, and then eight years later, I saw saw that all the backlash, and it seemed like we just it wasn't progress. It was as if we we unleashed a lot of feeling um, that had been hidden for a time. Uh, Janet, do you want to react to that? Um. It was progress. I mean, yes, all of these feelings uh, have been unleashed because a lot of people, their only um, asset, so to speak, is being white and male, that, that they don't have anything else going for themselves. And so to see a black man in a high position uh, sort of it's, it's like gouging their insides out because... If he can aspire to that, then, you know, that means that that's not the preserve for people like me. But the best progress about electing Barack Obama has been that for the first time in my life, and I'm almost 80 years old, we are talking about race publicly. That has never happened before in my lifetime. Black people are more visible now. And not only blacks, but also other marginalized groups are more visible now than they have ever been. And I think this is a direct result of Obama's being in office and the backlash that occurred because of his election. Mm -hmm. So all of these things that have been subconscious, undercover, on the down low are now out there on the table. And, of course, you can't heal anything until you recognize it. So these things are out there for us to look at and examine and, I hope, do something about. I want to talk about women just in positions of power. When we look at our legislatures, our you know elected folks, our appointments to heads of state, it's the majority of, of which are men's. How is that, Deborah? maybe you can speak to that, just the, the kind of laws and how they're being interpreted and how that then affects women and what they can achieve and, and do? Well, I think that that's a key point that's really important. And at all levels, you know, women are underrepresented when it comes to making laws, when it comes to interpreting laws in terms of being judges. Um, and I do think that having the sensibility of sort of having grown up as a woman and, you know, facing professional life as a woman does change the extent to which you focus on, you know, sort of basic workplace protections, robust enforcement against sexual harassment, support for women that need changes at work because of pregnancy, time off, not just immediately after a baby, but more flexible schedule when things arise unexpectedly, because we know that women um, are much more likely than their husbands to be the one who interrupts work when a kid is sick or for a school play or for parent-teacher conferences or all those things, um, and that they pay penalties at work for it. And also that men who try to take that kind of flexibility also pay penalties because they're assumed to be not you know, committed enough to work. So I do think that um, having more women in the lawmaking process would change the focus. And internationally, I mean, we're total outliers in that we are really one of three countries on the entire planet that don't at least guarantee a maternity leave for women. I mean, so we're really completely out of step with where the rest of the world is on many of these basic policies that can help make it more possible for women to balance, and men, to balance work and family responsibilities. And I think in terms of the questions about progress, we're not going to go back to, our, our economy doesn't work to go back to a time where the majority of women are not doing paid labor. Women and men are going to be doing paid labor and raising families, and we need to make that work better. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I just want to, I want to ask about elected position because, I, you know, I think, the population of the U.S. is is what fifty one percent 
women now, so you would think that in the voting public there would be a lot of women, more women than men who actually vote, yet it's so difficult for women to be elected to public office. Can you give me any insights into that? I mean, Hillary Clinton was absolutely ravaged by, you know, during the campaign. And she was, um, you know, no matter who you voted for, she really was very qualified as yes. a candidate. But she was portrayed as, um, you know, not, not fit to, I mean, you heard Donald Trump and others say she isn't fit to be president of the United States. I mean, and she's just, you know, one. I mean, there are people, there are, there are all levels of politics. And you don't find many women in the Senate. You don't find many women in the House. I think it's hard to look at what happened to Hillary Clinton and not think there was a pretty high level of sexism in the way she was treated um, and the way the media covered her. And I think one of the most interesting kind of post-election moments was when Kellyanne Conway, so Donald Trump's you know high-level advisor, was also being treated in a very sexist way based on a picture and comments about her appearance. And Chelsea Clinton tweeted and was like, I never thought I would be tweeting in support of Kellyanne Conway, but I am. No woman should be treated like this. So... I do think it's a challenge when women are in positions of authority. There's a disjunction at a deep level with kind of our understandings of what it means to be feminine. And unfortunately, that disjunction gets expressed often with a lot of very hostile, negative, extremely judgmental um, expressions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Kate, just an observation as a, you know, as a, a woman who's, a, you know, an, a faculty member. and I mean, yeah, I can speak. Uh, from my own experience, yeah. but also from the research about this, that um, I think Hillary, well, so there's two things. On one hand, you said we have, you know, a population that's a very, very slight majority of women. So, you know, why aren't we electing more women leaders? So um, I think in in brief, the reason we don't have more women political leaders is um, because our stereotypes about what makes a good leader are very intertwined with, with men. Like we just... Um, on an unconscious level, have a have a bias or a stereotype that men make better leaders than women, and that being a leader is incompatible with being a woman. And so, those kind of stereotypes, those kind of unconscious biases, are held by both women and men. So, of course, there are many women who, um, you know, even women who call themselves feminists, but also women who don't, who just on some subconscious level are slightly more likely to identify leadership with women, with men, excuse me. So that's, I think, part of what Hillary Clinton was facing. And then the second thing she was facing was something we call the double bind. So the double bind is the idea, and there's lots, by the way, of uh, lots of empirical, um, experimental and research and survey research backing up these ideas. These are not just like things I made up. So these are very, very empirically based observations, these kind of leadership stereotypes we have about women. And then the double bind, which is the idea that women can be seen as either likable or competent, right? So if you think about, I like to think about Sarah Palin versus Hillary Clinton in this in this sense. Like we thought Hillary Clinton, we know, we, so our, our automatic unconscious bias is that women are less competent, especially in leadership than men. But if a woman proves her competence through, you know, the kind of things that Hillary Clinton did, then we will concede that she's competent, right? But we will then find her dislikable. So and yeah. there's, there is like literally a trade-off in experimental studies where they find that, that that people will rate women as less competent than men, but once they show the women are definitely competent, people will rate her as just as competent as the man, but less likable. When nothing else about her has changed, no information about her has changed. So there's a, there, there's a trade-off. And you saw this with Hillary Clinton. This is what you guys are pointing to is that people would – I mean literally the dialogue was she, she is very competent. It's true among Democrats especially. Um, but she's just not very likable. And the trustworthy thing, to me, is a subset of that likability. So I, you really see this kind of double bind that she was in, I think. And mm-hmm. putting aside the politics of it and all the other things that happened, many, many things happened that were not about this, you really could still see that dialogue. I think it was at least part of it and maybe a big part of why she lost the election, okay. in addition to several other things, actually. <laughs> Janet, yeah. do you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask uh, um, these women who are academics, Don't you think that the fact that we put so much emphasis in this society on what women look like, Mm -hmm. on the objectification Mm -hmm. of women, on their being beautiful, they have all these reality shows where women are wearing tons of makeup, don't you think that that helps to um, sort of tone down the effort for women to become competent 
and to become leaders because they have to be so concerned about looking a certain way. I'm going to let our panelists think about that for a minute, Mm -hmm. Janet. It's a great question, but we're going to take a short break before we let them answer that. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about uh, women's issues, a lot of women's issues, and uh, it's it's it is Women's History Month, but we're just going far afield and talking about all sorts of women's issues here today. We have two guests in the studio, Kate Taylor, an assistant professor of gender studies and sociology at Indiana University, and Deborah Whitus, professor of law at the IU Maurer School of Law. And also joining us by phone is Janet Cheatham-Bell, who's an Indiana author, and her works have centered on race and gender. And uh, she's written many books about uh, many topics that, that touch on those things. So if you want to join us on the program, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Before we went to the break, Janet, ask a question. And now Kate and Deborah are going to try to answer it. Kate, I'll go first. Okay. Um, so I guess what I would say about that is, um, Jenna, I think that's a really – really good point and a really interesting question and kind of deep, deeply gets at some of the contradictions of um, what it, women's expectations, all women, black women, white women, um, women of all different kinds um, face in the in the country right now. And I would say that I think, I agree with you in the sense that I think it's um, difficult for women because we actually have expectations now of having, of being um, a physically or sexually attractive in a certain way and also expectations to be competent and um, be able to um, what's the, succeed in the workplace. And so kind of navigating those two expectations and figuring out the right way to be attractive enough to be taken seriously but not too attractive to be seen as, as using your sexuality to get ahead and kind of navigating all of that I think is very difficult. And I think um, – I'm not exactly sure if this is what you were saying, but I think it was. I think that that has actually increased as media exposure has increased in certain ways for young women. And so navigating that yeah, may, maybe I, has become harder. Say, yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's another one of those double binds. Like you can be both attractive – you can be attractive or competent, but not both. But you have to be attractive enough to be seen as competent at a basic level. So, yeah, I think navigating that is very difficult for young women today for sure. It, I don't know if this fits into the double bind, but what about the expect? Almost seems like an expectation that if you're a woman, you should have a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is that one of the double binds, or, or how does that fit into this conversation? Because I'm I'm sure all of us have been there. It's you know starting in your mid twenties, you're asking, when are you going to have children? Well, of course, you could yeah. ask the same thing to men, you know, and you can just pause and think that we have a phrase working mother. We don't have a phrase working father. <laughs> you know, that's just not even the way we think about it. Um, but the other shift that we haven't touched on, but I do think is really important, is the rise in women having children without being married. So at this point, 40 percent of new babies born in the United States are born to unmarried couples. 
Um, now, sometimes the father is involved, at least at the point of the birth and around for a good period of time afterwards. But increasingly, women are raising children on their own without being married to a husband. And that's very related to race and class. So those rates are much higher for working class and poor women than for relatively highly educated affluent women. And they're higher on the basis of race, too. And so I think that just even recognizing that and recognizing that for those women, like they are the primary breadwinners, they're the head of the household, they're also the primary parent, and and that's the reality, um, kind of shifts that question about when you have children and do you have children and how do you balance into a different space that I think often gets lost in these kinds of conversations. Yeah. Jana, was part of your question also about the you know society's portrayal of, continued portrayal of women. I mean, I think about commercials I see on television that might be anything from a, you know, a fast food restaurant commercial to a shampoo commercial where, you know, the the people in the commercials are, are women and they're models and that, and they're, they're selling hamburgers or they're selling shampoo or some other, some other or item. Or used cars or, used or car, anything. Right, right. It's, you know, it's like, if we put a very attractive woman who's carefully made up and carefully dressed into the ad, then that will help to sell the product, whatever it is. And I think that using women in that way, and and then all of these proliferation of reality shows of the real housewives of wherever, uh, the women are are have boob jobs, they wear tons of makeup, and a lot of people watch those shows. So the message is that how you look is paramount. And I think that that is having an impact on women's minds because they get attention for how they look, and then that becomes more important than, say, running for office or being politically active. Uh, I'm, I see that I have a young grandniece who is very much into that, and I see that with her and other young women, and, and it makes me sad in 2000, in the 21st century, that that is being promoted the way that it is. Mm-hmm. Kate, you want to react to that? Yes, but I, don't, I, don't, I haven't put together a thought about that. It's 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 not exactly my area of expertise. I don't gotcha. have a lot of like research expertise on that. But l- let me think about it for a second. Okay. Yeah. All right. Deborah, you were talking a little bit just about women in the workplace. I'm wondering if we can just um, dive into that a little bit more about some of the challenges, in particular, that women face who may, who may be single mothers in the workplace, and then sort of also, I guess, in the legal system. Um, Well, you know, I think there's still a lot of discrimination um, against women in the workplace. You know, there's also a lot of um, well-done empirical studies on this. You know, even just basic things like you change the sex of, you know, you have a resume and if it's presented as a woman, it's not treated as, you know, as favorably and the pay offered is not as good as if it's a man with exactly the same qualifications. Um, Those Differences become particularly pronounced if it's clear that the the woman is a mother. So there's something called the motherhood penalty, um, which is well established, which is essentially, um, you know, like a pay gap for every additional child that a woman has compared to somebody who has comparable, um, a a man or a woman without children with comparable credentials. Um, So, you know, essentially employers are, are, when they are valuing potential employees, are discounting the contribution that women will make, particularly if they're mothers, assuming that they're not going to be as committed to the work or as productive in the work as men. And then that becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, because then if the woman is is making considerably less and there's a choice about who then – you know, makes choices in their careers that increase flexibility, then it will be more likely to be the the women. And so you see women sort of being, quote, mommy tracked, um, you know, because of this bundle of expectations and the way they play out. So, um, you know, I think that that remains quite true. I I will say that sort of in the, the question about progress, I was thinking about that and has there been progress? And I think that in sexual harassment, there really has been enormous progress, even with 
you know, inappropriate comments that continue to be made and occasionally inappropriate touching, the norms around just sort of professional respect for women at a, a most basic level that not everyone in your workplace is available to be sort of a sexual object has changed really dramatically. And that is a place where law and legal liability just really helped change that once that was recognized as a form of sex discrimination and not just kind of harmless banter in the workplace, but something that really interfered with women's ability to be productive at work and to be recognized as equal employees. Um, I do think that that's a place where the norms have shifted enormously. Mm-hmm. We have a question that's come in, and I'm going to ask, uh, how does the immigration of women from other societies impact the American efforts for women's rights? may want to tackle that. Well, I think one aspect of that is recognizing that professional women who do achieve, you know, high levels of success often depend on immigrant women to make that possible in terms of the care that's being provided to their kids, other domestic work that's happening in the home. You know, it's not necessarily that men are picking up that work. It's that the women and the families have enough resources to be hiring other people to do that and the other people that they're doing it are basically poor women um, and often undocumented women. So, um, you know, I do think that that's intertwined and it's important to recognize that connection that, um, and there, there have been studies sort of finding that as women's independent income rises, you see a very direct correlation to the amount that they're hiring help for domestic obligations. Mm-hmm. So, Janet, do you want to uh, touch on that? From, just from your perspective of you know growing up in Indianapolis in the '60s, '70s, and you know some things that you saw. Well, I think that one indication of some progress that that has been made, and I've noticed this not only locally but as I travel around the country is that a lot of the jobs that used to be exclusively held by black women, especially in terms of domestic service, are now being held by immigrant women because black women are doing other things. And I mean, because the opportunity for black women to be educated and to do other things has increased. So they no longer have to. When I was growing up, I was actually being groomed for domestic service because that was what all the women in my family did to earn money, my mother, my aunts. And so it was expected that that would be my career as well. (laughs) But I managed to get a college degree and do something else. And, And I see that the fact that immigrant women are doing these jobs, um, as an indication that African Americans have made some progress in that area, especially. Also, the other thing about immigrant women, too, is that not all of them are in domestic service. A lot of the uh, immigrant uh, women who come to this country come from um, upper-class families and are well-educated. And uh, I just saw, I was watching Makers on uh, PBS, and I saw that the CEO of some Fortune 500 company was a woman from India. So not all of them are in domestic service. Let me give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Janet mentioned a woman there who was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but really just how rare is that com- compared to men? Can Can you speak to that a little bit, Kate? And then I guess my, my follow-up question to that would be, I wonder how many male CEOs have children compared to female. Um, I don't know the rates of female male CEOs off the top of my head. I sh- it's it's very small. Like the minor, it's a very the Fortune 500 company female CEOs. It's a, it's a tiny minority. I can't remember what the number is. Um, I a lot of um, women. It, it turns out that a lot of women who are in very high level executive positions. Um, have stay-at-home husbands, so or or as um, Deborah points to hired care, and I think actually this really points this whole conversation we just got into about immigrants and then now CEOs interestingly points to something that um, I think is really important to think about in terms of um, progress for women in the paid workforce, um, especially women in professional and managerial occupations specifically. So that subgroup of women, 
one thing that um, we've observed is the stall of women into the workforce in the, in the mid-1990s. And some people think, and I think this is right, that part of the reason that stall has happened is because we've hit a wall of what women can do without men moving into care work. So we can... Um, so women can shift some of the care work onto other women. And in some ways, that's kind of exploit it's an exploitative strategy that many feminists object to. But um, what many feminists recommend is that we think about moving men into care work more. And I think that women's progress, um, women of all types, will be stalled until um, the male breadwinner as the most important facet of masculinity, which has been uh, has not changed in the you know in the last 50 years until men um, do do more care work and less breadwinning. I think that's actually women have made large progress into the male kind of typed arenas, but me, men have not come into female typed arenas partially because care work is devalued and low paid. I mean we we sentimentalize care work, but we don't pay well. We don't pay it well, and we don't respect it. We don't like um, think people who do care work are kind of competent generally. Oh, they're good at that, but they're not good. They're not competent in general. So I think. Thinking about care work differently and moving men into care work is, a, is going to be a huge factor for women's progress in these kind of elite occupations you're talking about, but also thinking about the exploitation of low-paid women, immigrants, women of color. These are important things to think about. Our producer's writing that t there are 26 female CEOs out of all the Fortune 500 yes, a very low number. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 26. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. I would love to pull that sort of across government, too, and try to figure those numbers out, because I, I bet it would be similar based on what you all are saying. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, I wasn't uh, trying to imply that women, there were lots of women CEOs. I was merely pointing out that all immigrant women aren't domestic workers. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, just, it just made me, made me think of that. Yeah, I think that's another, again, going back to the point that like, there's a lot of heterogeneity in any group and you, it's that all, yeah, all immigrant women aren't, aren't of one kind, right? There's, they, they vary across social class. Yeah. So I wanted to touch back on the, um, let's just go to Congress and, and uh, you know, the, the federal government because there was, a, there was a picture on Facebook yesterday that uh, was of men, white men, all white men talking about um, you know, the uh, what is it, the American Health Care Act today, which has a lot to do with women's health care. Did you guys see that? Or, Kate, did you? I mean, uh, and what picture. was your reaction to that? I mean, I mean, that that goes to this whole point of we still we have a uh, we have a, a, a group of, of lawmakers that are made up primarily of white males. And they're still making laws because we keep electing white males to these positions. And um, I don't know. I just I just bring up the topic to get reaction from any of you. Did you want to give me a legal? legal <laughs> I don't know that I have a legal reaction. Um, you know, I do think it's relevant. At some level, I think maybe even the more important fact there that you won't see from the picture is Congress is basically extraordinarily affluent people. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and ones who have worked in professional jobs generally their whole life will have never lived without without health insurance, have never worried about sort of living paycheck to paycheck and a medical emergency happening and having no resources and likely don't have people in their family that have lived like that either. That to be elected to Congress, it's now such an expensive proposition. Um, and so you need to have contacts and, you know, with people with a lot, a lot of resources. And I I can't remember, maybe your producer can do his magic or her magic, <laughs> but the net worth of a member of Congress is, I think, well over a million dollars at this mm -hmm. point. I mean, it's something very high. So, you know, in some way, I, I do think the lack of women matters, but I think even more just the lack of people that have sort of lived a real poor working class life and not had health insurance and not had that kind of security being invisible in this debate. Mm -hmm. um, or not, maybe not invisible, but not the vast majority of the people that are making these decisions, I think, is a really important um, piece that you don't see from the picture, but I think matters. Um, there's a story, and I don't know if this is right or not, but the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is our um, law that provides unpaid leave after the birth of a child. Um, I mentioned before that we're total anomalies internationally and that we don't guarantee paid leave. But it also doesn't guarantee sick days um, for a worker or to just take care of a sick kid, you know, who just is home because they have a fever or whatever and gets it sent home. 
And the apocryphal story, which may or may not be right, is that the reason the FMLA didn't address that was that it didn't occur to Congress that people didn't already have sick days. But there's no there's no <laughs> mandate in the U.S. that your employer provide you sick days, and a lot of employees don't have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those kinds of disjunctions can be easily lost but are really important. Uh, I'd like to add to this discussion that I just read in USA Today where Emily's list, the political action committee that supports women running for office, um, said that it had heard from nearly 10,000 women who might run for office, almost 10 times as many as during the whole 2016 election cycle. And this has been since November the 8th. Mm -hmm. So I think perhaps women's consciousness is being raised that more women need to run for office and need to be elected to these positions so that these decisions are not always being made by men. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, producer Ryan did send us a note, said there are four women governors out of 50 in the United States. So Yeah, I mean, yeah. politics, I mean, speaking of my area of expertise of being of occupational sex composition, politics <laughs> is a male-dominated occupation, mm-hmm. and you can see the effects of that, the same effects and causes that you see in every male-dominated occupation. Let's go to the phones real quick. We have a phone call from Dylan from Bloomington. Dylan? Hi. Um, I really like the discussion today. I just wanted to ask a question. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I'm uh, 39 years old. I'm a, I was a latchkey kid. I was raised by a single mom. Um, I'm also a teacher, um, and uh, basically my wife and I built our life around uh, spending as much time with our family and our children as we raised them as we could. And uh, I, I feel like I hear this a lot more uh, these days of the, uh, this this new generation of men uh, uh, moving into care, talking about care work, moving into care work. Um, I don't know if teaching qualifies as care work, but when I started teaching, I was basically given my first job because I was a man, because there was no there were no male teachers in this particular school. Um, and that seems to have changed a lot, but also an attitude towards parenting. Um, I know that there are a lot of people... Um, I feel, I feel like there's more people talking about how important uh, both parents are than, than there was in the past. Um, and I'll take my uh, take your, your answers off here. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. I think that, I mean, Dylan is his name? Dylan. Uh, Dylan's mm-hmm. question and point is so well taken. And I think that gets to the, the a, a main thing about gender inequality. So when I say that men need to be more involved in care work, actually, it's true that men's, ad- this is empirically true in the in survey data, men's attitudes about care work have changed and more men are more interested in ta- doing care work for their own children. But as long as we don't have the structural supports to allow families, so we need paid parental leave for both parents and we also need high quality um affordable child care, but also preschool for kids. So if we don't have those kind of structural supports for families who to um, help take care of their children, then neither women nor men can um, leave work to take care of their kids some of the time, right? So I guess, okay, so in short, what I would say is um, when families, we live in a society where we have men's ideology is such that they want to take care of their children. When families are faced with the reality of someone has to step out of the workforce and take care of the children, it's often the woman, even if the family does not prefer that in a heterosexual couple, because women get paid less on average. They have, they're less likely to have health benefits on average. So quite often, the family has to make a choice um, to have the woman pull out of the workforce, plus you know, very strong norms of intensive mothering um, that, you, that you were pointing to. So these things together conspire to have women pull out of the workforce, even if the family prefers the men to do caregiving, which many men do, and that actually has changed recently. So I think that putting structural supports for families to be able to um, allow both women and men to stay in the workforce would go a long way towards breaking down the male breadwinner, anti-caregiver male model. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, think, I think one other piece of that is um, making sure that men who choose to do that caregiving work or choose to leave you know, mm-hmm. work for a sick child are not penalized at work for making that mm-hmm. choice. So 
increasingly there have been sex discrimination cases brought by men who are showing if a woman had made this choice, she wouldn't have been penalized at work, and I was, because my employer didn't expect and didn't respect the fact that I would choose to stay home with my kid. They wouldn't have thought twice if a woman had chosen to stay home with her kid. But when I did that and, you know, it delayed completion of whatever by some amount, um, you know, I was deemed not a good worker and so therefore not granted a promotion. So increasingly men are bringing those cases and winning those cases. Mm-hmm. Um, because they are able to show that women are expected to, to take this kind of flexibility at work and then are not penalized in the same way that men are. And so I, I think Dylan is right. I think that, you know, when I teach my students, and so, and so I teach at the law school, so I have sort of aspiring lawyers, it's both men and women that are worrying about the legal profession and the long hours it requires and mm-hmm. what that will do to their family life. Mm-hmm. I think it's a more prevalent conversation about among the women, but it certainly is true that the men are also worrying about that. So I do think that there is the desire um, among many sort of millennials um, for a different kind of balance, and now it's a matter of putting structural supports in, but then also ensuring that um, they really are enforced fairly and that men who do seek to take the more active role don't face discrimination at work because they have. What do you see as maybe the the biggest obstacle facing women in, in the next five years, if you could even narrow it down to, to one? Kate, we'll start with you, maybe. The biggest... Um, like the biggest obstacle or the biggest hurdle that maybe we need to, to work to try to overcome, what should take priority? Um, I think I think the biggest the priority actually should be on um, dealing with these kind of, honestly, uh, policy level solutions. So I think you can deal with um, women's inequality at a cultural level, like changing cultural notions or at a policy level. And right now our cultural notions are way ahead of our policy support. Mm-hmm. So when we get um, you know, the legal, um, legal protection for men who want to do care work, legal protection for women who want to, do, to take care of their children, and also the actual like, governmental support, like m- most countries at our level of economic development have. We're way behind. We lag on that, too. When we kind of catch up with them, I think we'll see more gender, inequ- gender equality. Yeah. How about you, Deborah? Um, I would second, <laughs> I think, pretty much everything that Kate just said. And, you know, I am heartened at that report that Emily's list um, – so many more women are interested in running because I do think that that will make a difference, that I, th- I think that having more women um, helping craft policies will help achieve some of those policy objectives that have been um, elusive. Janet, we have one minute to go, so you get the last word. Uh, I think women need to become more demanding where they are right now, wherever they are, wherever they're working uh, or in elective office, Wherever they are, they need to become more demanding and do not accept the stereotypes or the traditions that have held up until now. All right. Thank you very much. That was Janet Cheatham-Bell, who joined us by phone today. And we've also had in the studio Kate Taylor and Deborah Whitus. Thank you very much for being here with us. And for Sarah Whitmire and producer Ryan DiBattista and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.